Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Despite the chilly winter weather, I and my friend, Jimmy Akin, had experienced the most productive January. After hunting down the infamous Priory of Zion, we disentangled several ancient mysteries, looked into baffling medical cases, and solved the assassination of a high government official in Italy. Who knew what adventure would come our way next? And so, on the first Friday of February in the year of our Lord 2020, I called on my friend... I found Jimmy Akin sitting in his study, organizing his electronic files and smoking the curved briar pipe that was the companion of his thoughtful hours. Ah, there you are, Bettinelli, he said. You're just in time. Whatever for, I queried. For a case that has baffled the brightest minds of our generation. They have only a 5% solution. This is a dark matter, and dark energies have been at work. For 95%, 95% is missing. 95% of what is missing? I asked mildly. Why, 95% of everything! Absolutely everything! You mean? That's right, he snapped. We are about to embark upon the case of the missing universe. You're listening to episode 83 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about dark matter, dark energy, and the case of the missing universe. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Sir Isaac Newton was born in the 1600s, and he worked out the fundamental laws of gravity. In the early 1900s, Albert Einstein began a revolution in the physics that changed Newton's understanding. In the 1920s, Father Georges Lemaitre proposed the Big Bang Theory to explain the observations of galaxies that had been documented by astronomers like Vesto Slipher and Edwin Hubble. But in 1933, the Swiss astronomer Fritz Zwicky noticed that something was wrong with the galaxies. They didn't behave the way Newton's or Einstein's theories predicted. To explain this, Swicky proposed a hidden form of matter called dark matter. Then, in the 1990s, new discoveries pointed to an even more radical idea called dark energy. So what are dark matter and dark energy? How do they fit into the current crisis in science? And is our understanding of the cosmos hopelessly broken? And that's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, uh, what is this mystery that we're, that we're talking about today? Well, as we discussed in the opening intro <laughs> to this episode, which you did a really good job on. Thank I you. I want to compliment you on that. I also like how when you speak in my voice, little bits of Cockney slip in. <laughs> that, uh, we're talking about the fact that 95% of the universe seems to be missing. Astronomers have made detailed calculations of everything we can see in the night sky using both visible light and other means. And it appears that normal matter, the stuff that, you know, you and I are made out of, represents only about 5% of everything that's out there. The other 95% seems to be something else entirely. So what is that 95% something else made of? Well, nobody knows for sure, but scientists have proposed that it's divided into two categories. The first category is called dark matter, and it's thought to be some kind of undiscovered particles similar to but different than the particles that normal matter is made up of. You know, not protons and electrons and neutrons, but something kind of similar, but not really. Dark matter is thought to make up about 27% of what's out there in the universe, which would mean that there's about five and a half times more dark matter than there is normal matter. So there's more of that than there is what we're made out of by five and a half times. The second category is called dark energy, and it's thought to be a fundamental force of nature that we haven't discovered yet, meaning that, or at least according to some theories, 
meaning that the standard four forces we know about, electromagnetism, gravity, and the strong and weak nuclear forces, are incomplete. Dark energy is thought to make up about 68% of what's out there. And since matter and energy can be converted into each other by Einstein's famous formula E equals mc squared, that means that dark energy would be 13 and a half times more abundant than normal matter. So even more dark energy than dark matter and normal matter. All told, dark matter and dark energy are thought to make up about 95% of what's in the universe, and normal matter, our stuff, is just 5%. So the dark part of the universe, whether dark matter or dark energy, is like 19 times larger than the normal part. So almost 20 times as much dark stuff as normal stuff. Okay, so... Why are these proposed forms of matter and energy called dark? Are they colored black? No. Uh, and some scientists have pointed out that the term dark is kind of a misnomer. The only reason they're called dark is because we can't detect them directly. We can only observe their effects. So they aren't actually black. In fact, if anything, they're invisible. So if you want, you could call them invisible matter or invisible energy or I've heard them called transparent matter and transparent energy, or you could call them undetectable matter, undetectable energy, something like that. But dark is a little misleading. If we can see the normal matter that's out there in the universe, why would we think it's only 5% of everything? Why do scientists think there's another missing 95%? Basically, because of how we see that 5% behaving. It's behaving as if there's another 95% that we can't see. To understand why, we need to go back to the time of Isaac Newton, who lived in the 1600s and the early 1700s. He was an English mathematician, physicist, astronomer, alchemist, and theologian. In fact, he was a heretical theologian, but he kept it on the down low so he didn't get persecuted by the Church of England. He also was the guy who gave us the idea of gravity. Uh, you know, the famous story about an apple falling on his head and giving him the idea of gravity. Well, it's kind of sort of true. The apple didn't fall on his head, but Newton did say that he started thinking about his theory of gravity after watching an apple fall off a tree. So what did people think about gravity before Newton? Well, people had always known that things fall down, but they didn't know why. And they didn't have the idea that gravity was a force binding matter together. In the time leading up to Newton, people had started to think about why things fall down here on Earth. They also had started thinking about why the planets in the sky move around the way they do. What Newton did was he had the realization that it's all the same thing, that the reason things fall down on Earth and the reason the planets move in the sky is because there's a single force that governs them both. And this was a blinding insight at the time. Previously, people had no idea that the same thing causes apples to fall that moves the planets. They thought these were two unrelated phenomena. But periodically in the history of science, you have these amazing moments of insight where somebody realizes that different phenomena we see in the world can be explained by a single underlying thing. And moments like this, where you realize it's, it's all one thing, are called unifications, uh, where you realize you can unify two phenomena with a single explanation. And so Newton's reunification was he realized you could unify earthly motions and heavenly motions with a single force. And so this is sometimes called the first great unification in physics. Newton wrote an equation describing the effects of this new force, and suddenly we could explain the motions of both earthly and heavenly bodies. He named the new force gravity from the Latin word gravitas, which meant at the time heaviness or even dignity. Mm. So I can probably guess the answer to my question, given how people react to change generally. But how did people react to Newton's new ideas? Newton got pushback. Nobody could see this invisible gravity force and nobody had heard of it before. So people criticized Newton for introducing this magical, hidden or occult force that nobody could see. 
And they were serious about the idea of, of it being magical or occult because Newton was also an alchemist and what people called natural magic was a big topic in his day. Natural magic was magic that involved the forces of nature as opposed to like summoning spirits and stuff. Newton was living in an age when what we now call natural science was still called natural philosophy or even natural magic. Astronomy was still bound up with astrology and chemistry was still bound up with alchemy and botany with herbology. And so uh, science and magic were really intertwined at this time. Gravity seem, in particular seemed to be magic because it involved action at a distance. Uh, two bodies could affect each other just by their mass with no medium of exchange, with no stuff bouncing between them. It, it wasn't like dropping a rock in a pond and then having the waves ripple out and push something. Two objects with mass were supposed to be able to somehow pull on each other even in a vacuum with no medium connecting them besides empty space. So, you know, that sounded really occult, really weird. It was kind of a precursor of what Einstein, in another context, would refer to as spooky action at a distance. And even Newton was not happy about this inexplicable state of affairs. He didn't know why gravity worked. He just knew this equation seems to describe how things move. And because his equation worked, eventually people came to accept the idea of gravity, even though they had no idea what it was. Uh, they still couldn't explain it or why it works, but they gradually got used to the term gravity and stopped thinking of it as a, as a magical force. Newton's equations thus became the basis of what's now known as classical mechanics, uh, which was the dominant form of physics until the early 20th century. So until the early 20th century, what changed? How did that change? Well, Newton's equation explained a lot of what we see in the universe, but not everything. Uh, it did not example. It did not, for example, um, explain light, electricity, and magnetism, which were three other forces that people had known about since antiquity. In the 1800s, another unification happened when James Clerk Maxwell realized that all three of those phenomena could be explained by a single force of nature that we now call electromagnetism. Maxwell's discovery is sometimes called the second great unification in physics following Newton's. And so now we had two fundamental forces to play with, gravity and electromagnetism. Newton's equation describes the motions of bodies really well under most conditions, but it doesn't work as well when you're dealing with things that are really small, really heavy, or really fast. And in the early 20th century, scientists started developing new theories to account for these facts. Newton's classical mechanics was replaced by quantum mechanics to deal with the realm of the really small, and it was supplemented by Einstein's theory of relativity to deal with the realm of the really big, things that are really heavy or really fast and extreme in that way. In 1905, Albert Einstein proposed what's now known as the theory of special relativity, and in it, he argued that space and time are not constants, as Newton had and everybody else had assumed. They can be warped. So very massive and very fast objects can distort space and time. So time can dilate or expand and space can bend or contract. To give an example of that, you might want to go back and listen to episode 20 of Mysterious World, where we talk about the lost planet Vulcan. Something is wrong from the viewpoint of classical mechanics. Something is wrong with the orbit of the planet Mercury, if you apply Newton's gravitational equation to it. And to account for this oddness, scientists proposed that there was another planet between Mercury and the Sun, which they named Vulcan. So there's this other planet in there that's tugging on Mercury, and that's what makes its orbit odd. Some astronomers even reported sighting the planet Vulcan. But in 1915, Einstein proposed his general theory of relativity, and he realized you didn't need another planet to account for Mercury's orbit. The sun is so heavy that it warps the space around it, and that's what causes Mercury to move the way it does. 
Einstein's theory was then validated by a set of observations of a solar eclipse in 1919. And there's a really dramatic story about that and how it all happened. Uh, you might want to read Thomas, Levis, Thomas Levinson's book, The Hunt for Vulcan, to hear about everything that happened. So now, after these observations, scientists needed more than just Newton's equations to predict things that we see in the night sky. They also needed Einstein's theory of relativity. So in, in the midst of all this, what was happening in astronomy during this period? A lot. By this point, astronomy had become disentangled from astrology, and many new discoveries were being made. One of the big problems of the day was the nature of what we, what then were called the spiral nebulas, or spiral nebulae, if you want to say it the fancy way. <laughs> when we use telescopes to look out in the night sky, we see lots of stars. But we also see these fuzzy patches, which are called nebulas. In Latin, nebula means cloud or mist. So we see these little cloudy, misty patches. And in the 1700s, people like the occultist Immanuel Swedenborg and the philosopher Immanuel Kant proposed that the nebulas were clouds of gas that would, that would slowly rotate and then collapse under gravity to form stars and planets. And this is known as the nebular hypothesis, and it's the standard view of how solar systems form. So we think like our solar system was originally a nebula, it was spinning, it collapsed under gravity to make the sun and the different planets. As astronomers studied the night sky, they noticed that some of the nebulas they could see have a spiral shape. And so these were called spiral nebulas. Many astronomers thought that they were solar systems, like ours, in the process of being formed. For example, one of these spiral nebulas was found in the constellation Andromeda, and so it was known as the Great Andromeda Nebula. So the Andromeda Nebula, not the Andromeda Galaxy? Right, because at the time they didn't have the modern concept of a galaxy. Since ancient times, people all over the world knew that there is this hazy band of light in the night sky. And you couldn't make out individual stars in this band. It was just kind of a whitish, milky light. And in Latin, this structure was called the Via Lactea, which if you translate it into English, it's the Milky Road or the Milky Way. A road and a way are the same thing. And it's not a candy bar. <laughs> in, in Greek, the same band of light was called the Milky Circle, or the Galaxias Kuklos. In the 1600s, though, uh, we got more insight on what the Milky Road is. Galileo used his telescope to discern that the band of light was actually made of many small distant stars. But when he and the other astronomers looked out in the night sky, they saw this milky band stretching around the entire universe. And so they assumed it was the entire universe. Uh, there was this one Milky Ring around us that they could see. And so the Milky Way is the whole universe. Until recently, and by that I mean the 20th century, most astronomers thought that the Milky Way was the only thing in the universe. That it was just one galaxy, the galaxy, all alone in the night. This meant that the spiral nebulas needed to be objects here inside the Milky Way. And that's why they were assumed to be solar systems in the process of being formed. So how did that change? As early as the 1700s, there had been some dissenting voices. For example, Immanuel Kant proposed that the spiral nebulas were actually distant universes of stars like the ones we find our like the one we find ourselves in. He called them island universes. The idea being that we're here in one island universe, the Milky Way, and the spiral nebulas are other island universes very far away. But this idea got pushed back, and it continued to get pushed back right into the 20th century. Uh, for example, the 20th century astronomer Adrian von Manen tried to measure the rotation of the spiral nebulas, and the results he got implied that if they really were distant island universes, they had to be spinning faster than the speed of light. Now, people had been measuring the speed of light since the 1600s, and by Einstein's time, it was well established that the speed of light is as fast as you can go 
in normal space. That meant that the spiral nebulas couldn't be rotating faster than the speed of light, and so they needed to be smaller nearby objects here inside the Milky Way. But one of the things that astronomers had known ever since ancient times is that occasionally a new star would appear in the sky. In Latin, new star is stella nova, and so these new stars came to be called novas. We now know that they aren't actually new. They exist before we see them. It's just they suddenly become brighter and allow us to see them for the first time. As better telescopes began to be developed in the 20th century, astronomers started spotting novas in the spiral nebulas, like Andromeda. In 1920, an event was held at the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History in Washington, D.C., which is now known in astronomical circles as the Great Debate. The participants in the Great Debate were Harlow Shapley of the Harvard College Observatory and Heber Curtis of the Allegheny Observatory. Shapley believed that the spiral nebulas were objects here within the Milky Way, and Curtis believed that they were distant island universes. Now, this is 1920. So just a hundred years ago, this year, the debate ended inconclusively. Like most debates, it didn't really change people's minds that much. So even a hundred years ago, it still was not firmly established that there were other galaxies. A lot of people still thought the Milky Way is it. It's the only thing in the universe. That was the state of affairs in 1920. But Discoveries continued to be made, and within a few years, the universe blew up in size, and people realized that the spiral nebulas, like Andromeda, really were distant galaxies, and we were living in a far larger universe than anybody had realized previously. As part of this process, of course, astronomers revisited von Manen's findings and discovered that they were mistaken. He had thought What he thought he saw was rotation was really an optical illusion. So you can't really see distant galaxies rotating because it's too slow. They do it too slow to really observe in a human lifetime. The nail in the coffin for the idea that the spiral nebulas were part of the Milky Way came in 1924 when the American astronomer Edwin Hubble found that Andromeda and various other spiral nebulas contain a special kind of star. Uh, this kind of star is known as a Cepheid variable, and they change their brightness in a... So that's why they're called variable. They change their brightness. But they do it in a really stable, predictable way. And that means that you can observe the brightness patterns of a Cepheid variable and figure out how far away it is. So the Cepheid variables that Hubble was seeing in the nebulas showed that they had to be really, really, really far away and so we realize that the universe has to be much bigger than just the Milky Way. And if you want to read about that, Martha Bartusiak has, Marsha Bartusiak has a really great book called The Day We Found the Universe. And it's an excellent read. We'll have a link to it in the show notes. Good, good. So now that we've discovered the basic structure of the universe, how did that lead to dark matter? There had been proposals since the 1880s that there was more matter in the universe than we could see, but a major step happened in the 1930s with the Swiss astronomer Fred Zwi or Fritz Zwicky. In 1933, Zwicky was studying clusters of galaxies, and in particular, he was studying one called the Coma Cluster. He found that the galaxies in the Coma Cluster were moving so fast that they should just fly apart. They shouldn't be a cluster. But they were behaving as if they were gravitationally bound to each other. And so he proposed that there must be some kind of invisible dark matter, or dunkel materiae in his original language, holding them together. Even though Zwicky predicted a lot of things that we later discovered, like neutron stars and gravitational lensing, his ideas were considered really far out at the time, and so they didn't catch on. He also had a really abrasive personality, which uh, may be part of why astronomers at the time didn't like his ideas, because they didn't like him. Here's a quotation from Michael Brooks's book, 13 Things That Don't Make Sense. 
His discovery regarding the coma cluster should have been enough to launch the dark matter hunt, but it wasn't, for the worst of scientific reasons. Comb the internet for references to Zvicky and you'll find the words brilliant next to maverick and genius next to insufferable. He doesn't figure large in the astronomy textbooks, despite his many important discoveries. He was the first to see that galaxies form clusters. He coined the term supernova. He was certainly one of a kind. But it was his interpersonal skills that needed most attention. He was a prickly, difficult man, convinced of his own genius, and convinced that he never got the recognition he deserved. He had a tendency to refer to all his colleagues as spherical bastards, that is, bastards whichever way you looked at them. Small wonder, then, that his colleagues turned a blind eye to his discovery of the coma cluster's missing mass. But he was right. Something about the mass of galaxies just doesn't add up, unless, that is, the universe is heavily sprinkled with dark matter. And in the 1970s, the American astronomer Vera Rubin found new evidence for dark matter by measuring the rotation of galaxies. Now, I thought you said you can't see the rotation of galaxies because they move too slow. Well, they do move too slow to see it in a human lifetime, but we can still measure their rotation. We can do that by observing the light that comes from them using the dop and measuring the Doppler shift. The Doppler effect is caused when something emits something that emits waves is moving either towards you or away from you. If it's moving towards you, the waves it emits get bunched up, giving them a higher frequency. And if it's moving away from you, the waves it's emitting get stretched out, giving them a lower frequency. That's why the sound of a train whistle rises as the train is approaching you and then falls as the train passes you and starts receding. The same thing happens with light. If a galaxy is moving towards you, the light will have a higher frequency, making it more blue or blue shifted. And if it's moving away from you, the light will have a lower frequency, making it more red or red shifted. We can also use this technique to measure how fast individual parts of galaxies are rotating, like the stars near the core or the stars near the edge of the galaxy. And then what did Vera Rubin find when she studied the rotation of galaxies? She found that the stars towards the edges of the galaxy are moving too fast. Uh, Based on how fast they're moving, they ought to leave the galaxies and fly off into intergalactic space. But something is keeping them in place so they stay in the galaxy. And today, most scientists think that the thing keeping them in place is dark matter. Where is this dark matter supposed to be? Because it's supposed to have mass, it clumps together due to gravity. So, you know, it's got mass, so gravity affects it. We can even map where in space the clumps would be. Since it produces this extra fast rotation in the outer parts of the galaxies, it's expected to be there, for example. In fact, dark matter may explain why galaxies form where they do. It may be that, well, the reason there's a galaxy here is because there's a bunch of dark matter there. And, of course, since we're in a galaxy, dark matter is supposed to be here as well. It's even thought to be with you where you are right now. Wherever you're listening to this podcast, you've got dark matter. You just can't see it because it's invisible. And you can't feel it because it doesn't interact electromagnetically. So the electromagnetic forces that keep you from passing through a wall or a floor do not stop you from passing through dark matter. So it could actually be whizzing through your body right now or drifting through your body right now. That's great. So my house isn't cluttered enough. I've got all this dark matter laying around, too. (laughs) Yeah. Fortunately, since it doesn't interact electromagnetically, none of your house guests will see it. (laughs) Good. That's good. So if that's what led astronomers to propose dark matter, what led them to propose dark energy? It was also the Doppler effect, but applied in a different way. As early as 1912, the American astronomer Vesto Slipher started measuring the redshifts of galaxies, indicating that they were moving away from us. In 1927, the Belgian astronomer Father Georges Lemaitre used these findings to propose what's now known as the Big Bang Theory, that the idea that the whole universe was originally in a hot, dense state, and then expansion started leading to the universe as we see it today. By 1929, Edwin Hubble had new observations that helped us understand just how fast the galaxies are moving apart, 
But in the 1990s, new discoveries started showing that the universe isn't just expanding at a fixed rate, it's accelerating. It's flying apart faster and faster. In 1992, the COBE, or Cosmic Background Explorer Satellite, measured the cosmic microwave background. That's the uh, radiation that's left over from the Big Bang. And it provided evidence that the expansion of the universe was accelerating. This was a huge discovery uh, because at the time, people expected the mass in the universe to cause its expansion to slow down by gravity. And the question was, is there enough mass in the universe to merely slow the expansion, but let it keep expanding forever? Or is there enough mass to close the universe by causing the expansion to reverse itself and fall back inward in a big crunch? And lots of people were hoping for the big crunch scenario, which might then allow for another universe with a new Big Bang to follow ours. That would allow potentially for an oscillating universe with no beginning and no end, just a series of Big Bangs followed by big crunches. So it was a shock when we found out that the universe is not only not slowing down, it's speeding up. And that would mean that the universe would fly apart forever faster and faster with no big crunch. The evidence from the cosmic microwave background was then verified in 1998 in another way by a Nobel Prize winning set of observations of distant supernovas. A team measured the distances to a set of supernovas and looked at how redshifted they were, measuring the speed with which their galaxies were moving away from us. And they again found that the universe seems to be speeding up. But, you know, to make something accelerate, you need to apply energy to it. Now, you know, that's Newton's first law of motion. Things will move at a constant velocity unless you apply a force to them. So if the universe is expanding faster and faster, that means some kind of force is being applied to it to make that happen. And since we otherwise can't detect this force, scientists named it dark energy. So dark matter and dark energy are not the same thing. Correct. Dark matter is supposed to be a form of matter that has mass and holds galaxies together. Dark energy is supposed to be a force that causes galaxies to fly away from each other faster and faster. All right. So I do want to take a moment here to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Edward R., Derek M., Steve H., Terry R., and Teresa N. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. So, Jimmy, that brings us to our theories. What are the theories about dark matter and dark energy? They naturally fall into two sets, those that deal with dark matter and those that deal with dark energy. There are a huge number of proposals, and some of them are very technical, so we won't be covering them all, but here are some of the major ones. When it comes to dark matter, one theory is that it's really normal matter, and we're just having a hard time seeing it. Another theory is that it's a new, undiscovered type of matter. And a third is that the whole idea is wrong and dark matter doesn't even exist. When it comes to dark energy, one theory is that it's a property of empty space itself. Another is that it's a field that fills space. And a third is that the whole idea is wrong and dark energy doesn't exist at all. All right. And so as we... Oh, no, normally do. We look at things from both a faith and reason perspective. So what can we say about dark matter and dark energy from the faith perspective? Not a lot, since this is a scientific mystery. But if they exist, dark matter and dark energy are just aspects of God's creation that we haven't figured out yet. There is one aspect of dark energy that you might think has faith implications, although it's not quite what you might think. Many scientists believe that as the universe expands, whether this is due to dark energy or something else, new space is being created, that there's more space in existence now than there was one second ago. If this is correct, 
then the act of creation is still ongoing. God is still making stuff, namely space for the universe to expand into. And that's not as surprising as you might think, since theologians have pointed out that the universe would cease to exist if God didn't continuously maintain it in existence. I mean, it required God to make it in the first place. It also requires God to keep it there. And thus, some, including, for example, John Paul II, have compared God's preservation of the universe in existence as a kind of ongoing creation. So we already had a kind of ongoing creation happening. And if the universe is expanding and there's more space now than there used to be, that's just a new form of ongoing creation. But I should point out that you don't need dark energy to have new space being created. Scientists already thought new space was coming into existence even before they found evidence of dark energy. So uh, you could see that as evidence of ongoing creation even without dark energy. So what can we say about dark matter from the reason perspective? What about the idea that it's just normal matter that we're having a hard time seeing? This was the initial kind of proposal that people use to try to explain dark matter. And that's reasonable because you want to try to explain things in terms of known phenomena before you start proposing exotic phenomena to explain them. So as a result, astronomers initially wondered whether the missing mass in the, in the universe might be normal matter that was just really hard to see because maybe it was really diffuse, like interstellar gas and dust. Or it, it might be bunched up in masses that are hard to see, like brown dwarfs, which are failed stars that don't glow like regular stars, or white dwarfs, or neutron stars that are too old and faint to see, or black holes that don't admit light. But it appears that dark matter isn't any of those things. And how would we know that? Well, let's look at interstellar gas and dust. There is an awful lot of gas and dust out there. In fact, there's way more of that than there is the matter forming stars and planets. But we can detect this kind of matter because when it's backlit by stars and galaxies that are on the other side of it, we can see it dimming the light that comes from those galaxies. Just like here on Earth, if you've got a car headlight pointed at you, but it's a foggy night, the fog dims the headlight and you can tell, oh, there's fog here. And so we should see this gas and dust if it's out there, and we do see some, but not nearly enough to count to account for the way that galaxies are rotating. We also can detect compact heavy objects like brown dwarfs, white dwarfs, neutron stars, and black holes, even when we can't directly see them. And we can do that because of their mass. They're so heavy that they warp light around them in a phenomenon known as gravitational lensing. That was one of the things that Fritz Zwicky proposed. So if a galaxy was filled with objects like this, we'd see gravitational lensing happening all over the place, and we don't. Uh, we do see light being bent by unseen heavy objects, but not nearly enough for them to be dark matter. And so, you know, it doesn't look like dark matter is normal matter that's hard to see, although there is one proposal for it being normal matter that is so unusual you could even group it with the exotic theories of what dark matter is. And what's that? The idea is that dark matter is normal matter, but it's hidden from us because it's in another dimension. Mm. In other words, there is a parallel universe or a set of parallel universes that are gravitationally affecting ours. We can't see the matter in them because it's hovering above or below our universe in a fourth dimension of space, but its, its gravity from the mass in that universe is spilling over into our universe and affecting things here. Uh, I've heard this idea discussed by a respected physicist like Michio Kaku, However, because we have no way to detect other universes, we have no idea how to verify or falsify this claim, and it doesn't seem to have caught on. All right. What about the idea that dark matter is an exotic, undiscovered form of matter? There are a bunch of proposals for this, and scientists have thought up all kinds of hypothetical particles that might explain dark matter. One class of such particles are called WIMPs, 
which stands for weakly interacting massive particles. So these particles would have mass, so they're capable of generating the gravitational effects of dark matter, but they otherwise don't interact with regular matter much, which is why they're weakly interacting. Uh, many physicists have been exploring an idea known as supersymmetry, which implies that normal particles have supersymmetric partners or superpartners, and these superpartners for particles are often called sparticles, and it's been proposed that sparticles might be the wimps that we need to explain dark matter. So like an electron will have a superpartner, a neutron will have a superpartner, and so forth. And it was thought that if they exist, the Large Hadron Collider at CERN would let us detect them. In fact, I remember predictions that as soon as we turned on the LH LHC, we should start seeing sparticles. But so far, we haven't. We haven't seen any. The only thing that the LHC has found is the Higgs boson. And this may mean that supersymmetry is wrong, that sparticles don't exist, or that the LHC doesn't have the power needed to produce them. Another proposal is that dark matter might involve primordial black holes. Uh, these would be black holes that formed in the early universe less than a second after the Big Bang. They thus wouldn't have to be stars, you know, black holes formed from stars, which need to be really big in order to form a black hole. But these, in the intense conditions right after the Big Bang, could form without needing to be based on stars, and so they could be much smaller than the regular black holes that form out of massive stars. And if primordial black holes are small, then they could be harder to detect with gravitational lensing, and thus that might help explain dark matter. But the fact they're harder to detect would also mean they're harder to prove. And thus far, we haven't found any primordial black holes, even though astronomers have been looking for them. Another proposal is that dark matter involves hypothetical particles known as axions. It's a little hard to give a simple explanation of axions, but basically they're a kind of particle that some have proposed based on the theory of quantum chromodynamics, which deals with the strong interactions between quarks and gluons, you know, the particles that make up protons and neutrons. There have been some reports that suggest we may have found evidence for the existence of axions, but the evidence is not strong enough at present for the existence of axions to be considered settled, much less whether they're dark matter. So what about people who challenge the whole idea of dark matter? What do they say? Well, basically, they say, wait a minute, how do we know that we've got gravity entirely right? I mean, maybe we see galaxies behaving in a way that Newton's equation doesn't predict because Newton's equation isn't fine-tuned enough. And that's not an unreasonable conjecture because we know Newton's equation isn't perfectly fine-tuned. That's why astronomers originally predicted that there was something wrong with Mercury's orbit when there wasn't. You needed to supplement Newton's equation with relativity to explain that. So uh, if Newton's equation needed to be tweaked to account for the massive gravitational field of the sun as part of general relativity, maybe it needs to be tweaked again to account for what happens in the even more massive gravitational field of a galaxy. Or maybe it's not the amount of mass involved, but the distances involved. I mean, we know how gravity operates on the scale of our solar system, but maybe it operates differently over galactic distances. Or maybe it's not the amount of mass or the distance involved, but the acceleration that's involved. If something moves fast enough, maybe that changes how gravity affects it. And this is part of a version of modified gravity known as modified Newtonian dynamics, or MOND. It's a theory that's out there that some people are proposing, that we need to modify Newtonian dynamics uh, based on factors like acceleration. And, you know, there could also be some other force out there that supplements gravity in certain situations. Advocates of who propose ideas like this that we need to modify our understanding of gravity are advocates of, as you would guess, modified gravity, which is sometimes called MOG. 
And so we have these modified gravity theories, advocates of whom or of which have proposed tweaks that they argue will fix our understanding of gravity and do away with the need for dark matter. They claim that we can understand the observed motion of galaxies better by just slightly modifying our understanding of gravity rather than by postulating that there's five times more matter in the universe than we can actually see. But there's recently been a new challenge to modified gravity because astronomers found a couple of galaxies that behave like they don't have dark matter. And if that's the case, then dark matter would seem to be a separate stuff that is found in some galaxies but not others not the product of a universal gravitational law that should apply to all galaxies. We'll have a link to a video by the astrophysicist Matt O'Dowd explaining these new galaxies that seem not to have dark matter and what their implications may be. But modified gravity advocates may be able to account for this, and I'm waiting to see what they have to say. All right, let's look at dark energy. What about the idea that it's an intrinsic property of empty space? The idea that empty space has an intrinsic energy to it is sometimes expressed by saying that there is a cosmological constant. Uh, whenever you hear the phrase cosmological constant, that's what's being discussed. Also, since empty space is a vacuum, you also hear it described as vacuum energy. Now, vacuum energy is a special case of what's called zero-point energy, which you may have heard about on Stargate SG-1. But vacuum energy and zero-point energy are not exactly the same thing. One is a special case of the other. The idea of a cosmological constant was proposed by Albert Einstein. Like others in the early 20th century, he initially believed in a static universe, one that didn't either expand or contract. But he realized that his equations for general relativity didn't allow for a static universe and that gravity should cause it to contract. He therefore included in his equation the idea of a cosmological constant to balance gravity and keep the universe static. So the cosmological constant represented a kind of anti-gravity to balance gravity. But when the redshifts of galaxies showed that the universe is expanding, Einstein abandoned the idea of a static universe, and he even referred to proposing the cosmological constant as his biggest blunder. But it turned out it may not be such a blunder after all, because when we found that the expansion of the universe is accelerating, that could suggest that there's an anti-gravity force that is intrinsic to space itself, and this is what dark energy is. The idea is that whenever you have a bit of space, it has energy that pushes outward so that new space gets created. And the, as the new bits of space are created, they come with the same outward pushing energy. So you get more and more energy as space expands faster and faster. That's why the universe is accelerating, according to this theory. Does dark energy have to be a property of space itself? No, it also might be a field that fills space but is distinct from space. This could represent a fifth fundamental force of nature to go along with the conventional four electromagnetism, gravity, and the strong and weak nuclear forces. Each one of those forces has associated fields. So, you know, with gravity, you have a gravitational field. With electromagnetism, you have an electromagnetic field and so forth. So dark energy might be a fifth field that fills the universe. As a result, some have named this field quintessence, which is Latin for fifth essence. And it's, it's kind of neat that they have called it that, because in the ancient world, the word quintessence was used to describe the element that was thought to fill the universe, but not be here on Earth. Here on Earth, we had four elements, air, earth, fire, and water. And then to explain what we saw out in the universe, you needed a fifth element, which was sometimes called ether, but also sometimes called quintessence, the fifth essence. And so it's uh, kind of neat to see that word brought back to describe a fifth fundamental force and a, a fifth kind of field that would uh, be in existence. So far, we have a bunch of proposals for how a quintessence field would work and how it could explain the expansion of the universe. But so far, we don't have any proof that it exists. All right. What about the people who challenge dark energy? What do they say? 
Some of them are modified gravity advocates. After all, if gravity doesn't work the way we think on a galactic scale, then it wouldn't work the way we think on a cosmological scale either. So maybe you can explain both dark matter and dark energy with just a refined understanding of gravity. That would mean that 95% of the universe isn't unknown to us. The 5% that the so-called 5% that we can detect would be all there really is. We just need to refine our understanding of how that matter interacts with itself. And in fact, you might not even need modified gravity to explain away dark energy. Last year, in 2019, a paper was published that challenged some of the evidence for dark energy. You remember how I mentioned that in 1998, a team of scientists measured distant supernovas and how fast they're receding, and that gave them evidence that the universe is accelerating. They even won a Nobel Prize for that. Well, now a new team has reviewed their data, supplemented it with more data, and done a new analysis. Uh, Their findings suggest the universe isn't accelerating. The earlier team's conclusions were apparently based on the fact that they were using a much smaller data set that wasn't representative of the universe as a whole. So this is a significant new challenge, but it's still too new to know what impact it's going to have. Further studies could reverse these new findings, or the truth might be somewhere in the middle. There may be, maybe the universe is accelerating, just not as fast as previously was thought. We'll have a link to a video by the German physicist Sabina Hassenfelder in which she discusses the new paper and what it may mean for dark energy. By the way, I really like her videos. I hear her and Matt O'Dowds. She has a nice let's challenge conventional wisdom streak in her that I very much appreciate. Uh, we'll also have links to videos by her and other people discussing both dark matter and dark energy in layman's terms. So, Jimmy... I guess that brings us to the bottom line. What is your bottom line on the case of the missing universe? Well, it's hard to say. This is a really technical matter, and it's not my field, so I'm not qualified to have much of a strong bottom line on this. Uh, What I can say is that most astronomers and physicists today do think that dark matter and dark energy exist, but there are also challenges to these ideas that need to be considered. It's also possible that, as often happens, the truth is somewhere in the middle. It could be there is dark matter and or dark energy, and our understanding of gravity needs to be tweaked a little. So do you have any preferences for what theories you'd like to turn out to be true? I I love mysteries, so part of me would love it to turn out that 95% of the universe is missing. (laughs) That would mean there's lots of new stuff out there, new physics and maybe even new chemistry that we might one day discover. On the other hand, I like to see ideas tested rigorously, and lately physicists have been getting caught up in flights of fancy that aren't presently testable and that really leave physics and cross over into metaphysics and philosophy. So uh, part of me is rooting for the skeptics of dark matter and dark energy, like the modified gravity supporters, because they serve as a needed check on the others. Since we started with a Sherlock Holmes open to this episode, though, I will say that uh, part of me would love for it to turn out that dark matter is a new kind of matter that's capable of forming dark atoms and thus dark elements. In that case, the solution to the dark matter mystery would be elementary, my dear Tom. (laughs) Excellent. So, Jimmy, what further resources can we offer to the listeners on this topic? Uh, We'll have a link to Marsha Marsha Bartusiak's book, The Day We Found the Universe, which, like I said, is an excellent read. Also, Michael Brooks's book, 13 Things That Don't Make Sense, which is another really fun read. Thomas Levinson's book, The Hunt for Vulcan, that has that dramatic story of the eclipse that proved Einstein's theory of general relativity. We'll have links to videos uh, by Sabina Hassenfelder on one of them is called Dark Matter or What. Another is What is Dark Energy? Uh, We'll have a video from her on the new paper challenging dark energy. Uh, We'll also have a video from her called Dark uh, called Modified Gravity Demystified and a video on combining dark matter and modified gravity. One of those truth is in the middle solutions. We'll also have Matt O'Dowd's video, uh, No Dark Matter Equals Proof of Dark Matter. 
about those galaxies that seem not to have it. Uh, we'll also have an article you can read about the galaxies that don't seem to have dark matter. Of course, we're going to have links to Wikipedia on both dark matter and dark energy. And we'll have a link to episode 20 on the lost planet Vulcan. So you can go back and, and listen to that. And also a link to Wikipedia's article on the 1920 astronomical great debate that didn't resolve whether the universe is just the Milky Way or not. Excellent. All right, let's move on to our mysterious feedback. And this time we have feedback on our Summerton Man uh, episode. And the first one comes from Michael L. on Facebook, who writes, Once more, you take a topic I had never heard of before and made it extremely interesting and engaging. Best podcast out there. I do have a mystery to add to your list. How does Jimmy find the time to conduct in-depth research on a new topic every week? He seems to have detailed knowledge of everything. My theory is that he's a time lord, but I'd be interested to hear other options. Uh, and Rick A. adds on Facebook, I've been wondering the same thing. Time Lord explains everything. Thanks for solving the mystery. <laughs> Jimmy, well, would you like to reveal your background here? Uh, I'm afraid <laughs> I can say nothing at this time. <laughs> Excellent. I'm going for a ride in a TARDIS. Uh, <laughs> I just need a cool Time Lord name first. Yes, I, the master of the doctor taken. You, the meddling monk is a good one, but that's taken. <laughs> that's two. taken too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Blag three four five on YouTube writes: Hi, Dom and Jimmy. I'm from Germany and have been listening to your podcast for a few weeks now. Thanks for the very interesting and mysterious content. As I listened to this episode regarding the Summerton man, a question came to mind: What if his last cigarette was the means of his poisoning? Given that he died or passed out shortly after lighting it. In the midst of enjoying his last smoking, it seems at least plausible. Were his cigarette remains ever tested? Thanks again for your excellent show. Keep up the good work. As far as I know, uh, his cigarettes weren't tested for poison, but today they probably would be. Today we've got more refined toxicological tests and they probably would have tested them because it is possible to, uh, to poison somebody via inhalation. It would have to, it would seem to have to be a pretty strong poison to, be fatal after just a few puffs because he only smoked half of the cigarette. So that would be maybe two and a half minutes worth of smoking. And so it's possible. I don't know that it's probable, but I can't rule it out. And unfortunately, as far as I know, they didn't do the testing and may not have even had the tests needed mm. at the time. I'm no coroner, but I, w I wonder if it would show an examination of the throat too, like if there'd be burn marks or, you know, other types of irritation that would show because yeah. of it. It would depend on the on the mechanism of the poison. I mean, if it was something like thallium, it, I don't know that it would irritate the throat, but you probably okay. would start seeing tissue damage in the lungs. Right. And if I recall, his lungs may have been congested by blood, but I forget. Ooh, interesting. Uh, Carl Strello on YouTube writes, thanks for a fascinating episode. Amazingly enough, I lived in Adelaide, South Australia all my life, and amazingly enough, I wasn't aware of the Summerton Man, although I'm sure I would have heard about this. I just can't remember. I'm more aware of the, dis of the disappearance of the Beaumont children, where Jane Nartair Beaumont, Arna Kathleen Beaumont, and Grant Ellis Beaumont, Australian siblings who disappeared from Glenelg Beach near Adelaide, South Australia, on 26 January 1966. I think they had a couple of prime suspects, but after more than 50 years, their whereabouts uh, or what happened is still a mystery to this day. Thank you, Carl. And I've added the mystery of the disappearance of the Beaumont children to the big list. So I'll do some research and we may be hearing about it in the future. Flying Car 100 on YouTube writes, that was a good episode. Did you try deciphering the message? You know, I was really tempted to, but I, I didn't. I, I have to manage my time wisely and I needed to get back to my office that's bigger on the inside and do more research for future episodes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, then Anne on Facebook writes, a private crime group had been discussing the Summerton Man, and I quickly lost interest. I thought that Jimmy's Mysterious World episode 73 was going to be my least favorite. Boy, was I wrong. Engaged, beginning to end, love Mysterious World podcast. Thank you so much, Anne. We try to deliver. We try to make it fun and interesting to learn about these new things. All right, Jimmy, so what do we have for Mysterious Headlines this week? We have a tech theme in Mysterious Headlines to go along with our Missing Universe Science Mystery. Uh, one of the tech headlines we have is about an exosuit that gives you super strength. So it's kind of like Iron Man version 0 
Nice. And we want to be careful, though, with how much we automate things because we want humans to be in control of certain decisions. And so we'll also have a link to a USA Today editorial about the need to ban killer robots. The argument is, look, autonomous fire robots are not a fantasy. They can they could be on the near horizon and we need to stop them before they get there. Okay. So, Jimmy, we have uh, something new we want to add to our show, right? Uh, We want to throw out an appeal to the users, right? To the listeners, I'm sorry. So, you know, we've talked about dark matter and dark energy. We've thrown out a bunch of theories. So what are your theories? I mean, let us know whether you're on YouTube or Facebook or or however you listen to the show. Tell us your theories about uh, what we've talked about in this episode, and maybe we'll talk about them in upcoming Mysterious Feedback. Excellent. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Visions, prophecies, and private revelations, including how the church evaluates them. Excellent. So that's it from us. Let us hear from you by going to visit sqpn.com slash mysterious or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page. Send us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or send a tweet to at mys underscore world with the hashtag of Mysterious Feedback. Please be sure to share the podcast with your friends and write a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast to help us grow this community of listeners and reach more uh, people. And frankly, a lot of the topics come from our community. A lot of, uh, of the feedback as you hear comes from listeners. And so the larger the community, the better all that is. So we do appreciate that. Uh, you can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to those mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember, to help us continue to produce this podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. Quest.